Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God. I'm so glad you're here. If this is your first time coming to Gospel Saving Church, hello, I'm Pastor Ed Spagnoli, and we come to you from McKinney, Texas. This is Gospel Saving Church, one of God's true churches of these last days. And this is our weekly broadcast of truth from God's Word today. So many churches have gone the way of the world, and, and they don't really, they're not focused and and. and really drawn out of the scriptures. They kind of just make up their own rules. But we here at Gospel Saving Church, we're here to teach the pure truths of God's Word contextually and exegetically and, and the way they're supposed to be taught. So praise God. I hope that's why you're here, to hear those truths of God's Word. So if you guys would join me in a word of prayer, I would surely appreciate it. For we know the Word says that we can only understand the things of God by the Spirit of God. So Lord, we we thank you so much, Lord God, for your your wisdom. We thank you so much, Lord, for your words. We thank you so much, Lord God, for your promises. We, uh, Of course, we come to you, Lord God, and we are just human flesh. Lord, we're flesh people that do not understand the things of the Spirit, Lord, because we are flesh, Lord. So we, we pray, Lord God, that you'd help us understand the things of the Spirit, Lord God. As those of us that are born again, we can by the Holy Spirit that you've put within us, Lord, but, but even then, our human minds grapple with certain issues and grapple with things, and we struggle with different things. And, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would make things clear to us, Lord. Speak to us the things that are truly of you, Lord, and help us to understand those things, Lord God, and then help us to apply those things to our lives. God, we just pray, please, Lord God, we need you, and we need your understanding, Lord, and we need your help. God, we're helpless without you. We thank you, Lord, and we love you, and we praise you. And we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So today we're going to be in Acts chapter 17. Brand new chapter, as you see, as we were two weeks ago in Acts 16. I'm going to be reading verses 1 through 9. If I'll give you a minute to get there if you guys want to read along or if you just want to listen along. I'm going to read the scripture here in a little bit. But Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. The title of our new message today Paul proved Christ to them from the Scriptures. Paul proved Christ to them from the Scriptures. Acts 17, 1 through 9. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few Jews of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying, There is another king, Jesus." And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So last week, as I just spoke about in my little getting into the sermon here, we, we took a break from our verse-by-verse -verse teaching through Acts because the Lord had a special message 
for us concerning the apostasy that the current church is in. The state of the church is mostly apostasy now in our world. Powerful message, I might add. Please go and check it out if you haven't heard it yet. Title, Apostasy. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It comes from Judges, the book of Judges, the verse. It's based off a a verse in the book of Judges. The philosophy that's clearly pointed out in that title, apostasy, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, literally dominates most of the modern so-called Christian churches of today. Uh, Anyway, I'm not going to go off on that tangent as I did last week, and I spent the whole message doing that because today we have a new message from a new brand new chapter, Acts chapter 17. I'm going to continue on in my verse-by-verse teaching through Acts. Uh, New chapter, as you just saw, two weeks ago we finished Acts 16. Today we're opening up in Acts chapter 17. Two weeks ago in Acts 16, Paul and Silas had gotten into some major trouble, remember. They had... Paul had, uh, had, had exercised a demon from a demon-possessed slave girl. And then after he did that, of course, the slave girl's owners got mad and they arrested them or they dragged them to the, to the authorities of the, of the city. They arrested them. They, they flogged them, basically whipped them with these hard sticks, make them bleed all over them. They stuck them in jail. This is going back, you know, two to four weeks now. And so there, there they are sitting in jail. God does a string of supernatural miracles through Paul and Silas to deliver them from the evil situation. Again, that's going back now some ways. I'm not going to go back and revisit all of those messages. This week, since the rulers and magistrates of the city ended up there in 16, Acts, the very end of 16, begging, pleading with the apostles to, for them to leave, leave their fair city of Philippi in Macedonia. And that was one of the last huge miracles that was done there. They agreed, and after they had left their prison cell, they went, the scripture tells us, said goodbye, you know, hugs and kisses to all their Christian friends, and hey, we said we're going to leave, and so we're out of here. So that's where we open up Acts chapter 17. They are on the road again. Look at verse 1 again with me. Now, when they had passed through Ampipolis and Ampollonia, sorry, I'm not really good with speaking these Greek names of these Greek cities, and they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So here they are, still in Macedonia, by the way, just in a new town, the town of Thessalonica. Same as, by the way, First and Thess- First and Second Thessalonians of the Bible, those would be the epistles of Paul to the church in Thessalonica, probably the same church that Paul had planted when he was going through this missionary journey that we're reading about right now. Why might God have prompted them to stop there at this particular city at this particular place? Well, at least one reason, considering God's desire to bring his chosen Jewish people to Jesus Christ first, Romans 1.16 and Matthew 5.24, it's no wonder that we find God compelling them to go into the local synagogue of the Jews First, look at verses 2 and 3. Then Paul, as was his custom, uh, meaning this is what he did when he went to the cities generally, he went into them and for three Sabbaths, that would be three Saturdays in a row, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This is where our thrust for our whole message is going to primarily be right there in what Paul does with these Jewish people in the synagogue for three Saturdays, reasoning with them from the scriptures, then verse 3, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ or the Christ. I love the emphasis on the the there, meaning he is the only one. He is the only Messiah, the only Savior of the world. So as Paul is bringing the gospel to the Jews first, we see him 
apologetically. That's a famous Christian word in our, you know, our Christendom that we speak in, in churches and amongst one another. He apologetically proves to them that the Jesus he preached to them was the one true Messiah that God Almighty promised the Jews from thousands of years back. The same one that the late but great prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, David, we're going to go through some of those people's books today, some of those people's prophecies today as we keep going on in our message. But the same ones, these late great prophets of old, the ones of the Old Testament or the Tanakh, the ones that they laid down concerning the Messiah, the Christ that was to come. I would have loved to have been there listening to Paul as he went through these teachings and, and going through all these prophecies. Just think, uh, now just imagine, I know for sure that their church was longer than one hour like ours is here today. I mean, most American churches don't even have an hour service. Maybe they teach for 20 to 25 minutes. I have to really kind of beat myself into submission to not teach over an hour because the Bible is my favorite topic. I love talking about God. So anyway, they had they, their services would were way more than an hour. And Paul went there for three Saturdays in a row and basically took up the whole time that he was in these synagogues talking about these proofs of Jesus being the Christ. I mean, I would have loved to have been there. This this must have been an, an awesome series that Paul did. We call that a series today, by the way. I'm sure you already know that. But anyway, uh, by the way, we don't have to actually, I mean, we could wish that we were there, but we actually still have the same prophecies that Paul was trying to persuade them with today. As I said, they're in the what the Jews called the Tanakh, or the Christians would call it the Old Testament, of the unchanging word of God. That's really powerful, isn't it? It's really powerful how God has set up his word, and his word is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And we have original, we have texts that are thousands of years old, and it's just awesome how God's made the Bible just such a staple, a pillar of truth for all these many, 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 many years. Anyway, I also think it's really powerful that Paul was explaining and demonstrating to them the gospel that he was bringing them, reasoning with them from the scriptures, reasoning that Jesus was the Christ meant that he was bringing them the gospel by giving them biblical prophecy from the prophets and God's word, the Bible. Reasoning from biblical scripture is a more complicated way of saying that he was giving them proof from the scriptures of the prophets that the Jesus that he or Paul preached was indeed the one true Messiah, the one true Christ, the promised one that God Almighty had told the Jews for thousands of years before Christ came. Hey, this is how you'll know the one true Messiah that's going to come. He's going to do this, and he's going to do this, and he's going to do this. And and I'm going to speak all those things thousands of years before. It's called prophecy. It's one of the the awesome uh, things that we know about the Bible that no other book, no other... No other religion has prophecies that are, are they're bound by time and they're bound by circumstance and they're, they're, they're bound and they either have to happen or the Bible's a lie and the Bible says the prophecies, God gives the prophecies because he knows the future and he makes the future, in fact, just as he's made the past, right? And these prophecies form what, what makes a huge prophetic proof that God is God because we don't know the future. God knows the future, and because God knows the future, and he can say things that are going to come ahead, we know, hey, 
the Bible's got to be real. There's no other. Mormons don't have it. Mormons' prophecies are, a lot of them are false. Muslims don't have prophecy, at least prophecies not like, that are like the Bible. I mean, prophecies that they may have said happened then, then they happened him. But I'm not, I'm talking about prophecies that happened in one time of life, thousands of years before, and then came thousands of years after. No book of any religion has any prophecy like the Bible. So Paul here was proving the gospel and that Jesus was the Christ from the scriptures. Now, I say this so emphatically because today, giving people this same proof as Paul gave them here from scriptures, which some call evidential apologetics, which is what it is, uh, while many believe today that this is a heinous and terrible sin. We don't give people proof of Jesus Christ. They need to hear the gospel or that's it. Many hold this idea that this evidential apologetics is some kind of antichrist thing to do. Yet again, right from the Bible's mouth here, Paul used evidential apologetics to prove Jesus was the Christ along with the gospel to these people. Christians, evidential apologetics are not evil. If they were, Paul wouldn't have done them. Paul was a man that was so near to God and so near to Christ and had revelations of God and God used him to write over a third of the New Testament. What scriptures might have Paul used to prove that Jesus was the Christ and the gospel with? Well, I'm just going to run through a few of them today. As I said, we don't have three Sundays that I'm willing to dedicate the whole absolute sermon to. I could have done that. That's not what God led me to do. Again, they would have had more than three separate or more than one hour per sermon, and they went for longer. They went for more than one message in more than one day in three full days. I'm not going to do that. We're going to do it all in one day. The Bible says, Jesus said, seek and you shall find. I'm going to give you some of the really, really, really powerful ones that Scripture holds for us, some of the ones that it's indisputable. They're just amazingly awesome. I'm going to give you some of the ones in the Scripture, uh, just a handful today. And then if you want to know more, you can Google search today. We, we have more information at the tip of our fingertips than mankind ever has in all of history. So you can just Google prophecies that Christ fulfilled in the Bible or prophecies that were fulfilled in the Bible and that you just let your head be blown away. So here, these are just some of the ones that Paul would have run them through proving to them that Jesus was the Christ, giving them evidential apologetics to show them, to prove to them that the Jesus that he preached was truly the Jewish Messiah, the Christ. First off of our list today of what he might have used, what he definitely used, absolutely, it, was, it, was one of, it is till today one of the most powerful uh, proofs of who Jesus was and that it was really Jesus because our first... Uh, proof of today, our first, uh, what do you call it in a court, our first matter of evidence that we're going to look at today is there's nobody else in history that has ever or that even still could today match up to what this was. And I'll explain as we go. Isaiah chapter 53 verses 1 through 12. And it, the Bible says this, Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets of God, God spoke these things through his mouth, or he let him see a vision, and this is what Isaiah described. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and his root is out of dry ground. 
He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was described as one that was just an average man. And you say, no, pastor, that's really not that. You're right. That one's really not that big of a, a deal, but just wait. It gets a little bit better. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Nobody in history has there ever been any one more person that happened to this as people that hid their face from Christ. Yet he says, the Bible says, that he died because he carried the sins of the world as he went to the cross, and that is why he died for our sins, as verse 5 says. But he was wounded for our transgressions, and he was bruised for our iniquities, types of sin that people fall into. So he was wounded and bruised because we sin. Who, who else, that nobody else can say Ever And nobody else has even claimed, by the way, to have died for the sins of mankind. The chastisement, it goes on to say, for our peace was upon him. He said, by my sacrifice, I bring you peace, Jesus. And by his stripes, Isaiah says, we are healed. Because of his death, we can have spiritual healing before God. For the Bible says that we're all sinners before God, so we're all guilty of sin before God. Means that we cut ourselves off from God. We are, no, we are not good enough to get to heaven. Christ came, he says, his disciples died for the fact that by his stri stripes we are healed. Now, now here's another one. Verse 6, we just keep going. There's lots of little, lots, lots and lots and lots of little prophecies in here. All we like sheep have gone astray. Remember, we, uh, excuse me, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Remember in Christ's life, his disciples saw that what was happening to him, and then they fled. And then what happened was, right after they fled, the people took him, the evil people took him, and they crucified him. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before it shears the silence, he opened not his mouth. So when Christ went to the cross, he didn't complain. Oh, Lord, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Oh, God, get them. I can't believe that they're doing this. No, not even once. Jesus didn't do it one time. Let me see if I can pick back up where he was. He was taken from prison and from judgment, because remember, they arrested him and they took him to a mock trial. And who will declare his generation? So listen, he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. As right there, he died for the sins of mankind. And they made his grave with the wicked, but at the rich at his death. Remember, he died with some sinners on a hill on a cross. But yet, he was buried in a tomb. Tombs were meant for rich people. There you go. Nobody else again has either claimed to have died for the sins of mankind, and then not, nobody else ever has ever matched these exact things that God said the Messiah would have to do in order to be the Messiah, 
but yet Jesus Christ did. Nor was there, or because he had done no violence, the Bible says he had never committed any sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Uh, that was his death. That was his death for the sins of mankind, along with how he died, right? Along with what happened to him kind of during when he was dying, right? He, he, had the, he was arrested, and then he went to this tomb. Those are some details. But remember, Luke told us, as he, was tell, as he wrote to us in Acts 17, that Paul not only proved that Jesus was the Christ, but he also demonstrated the resurrected Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead, which means that he didn't stay dead. That means he came to life. What about that? Well, just keep reading Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. There again, that's the, the, the sin-bearing servant. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Verse 11, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Now, now hold on a second now. How does someone who's cut off from the land of the living for the sins of the world see the labor of his soul and be satisfied? How is it that he shall see his seed and that he shall prolong his days? If you're dead, you're dead. Can you name me any one other person that you've ever known of that's died, but then they still see their seed and they, their days are still prolonged? Nobody. Because nobody's ever been put to death and then able to see the prolonging of his days. There's the resurrection. By his knowledge, he goes on to say, my righteous servant shall justify many. For we know that if we're in Christ, we are a new creation, the Bible says, and that we're free from sin and death, and we have new life in Christ. For he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide us the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. I mean, that... that <laughs> he lived. <laughs> what kind of life did he live? Live. He was a nobody. We're going to talk about that later. And after that, this is how he died. This horrible way he was died. He died for the sins of the world. And but then after that, he's not going to stay dead. He's going to rise again. He's going to. God's. He's going to prolong his days. That's God. It has to be God there prolonging his days because we know only God can bring people back to life. Which we know that Christ died and then rose again. And this this scripture. Is barred down, bar none, hands down, the most powerful section of scripture that speaks about the Christ that proves that Jesus was indeed the true Jewish Messiah. It's like the, a perfect thumbprint of everything that Jesus Christ did as far as the, the, his death and his resurrection and what kind of life he lived and, and, and so on and so forth. It, it's just indisputable. And that scripture, in case you're a skeptic like I still am, that scripture was written about 1,000 to 12 to 1,500 years before Christ lived. It was also written in what the Jews call the Tanakh, which would be their Old Testament. And so the New Testament was written by Christians, and the New Testament and what all the disciples died for was the fact that Isaiah 53 was real. And, and if you're out there going, well, what does that mean? Well, it's always the greatest testament of the proof of anything when you can actually get your, your, a foe or an enemy or someone that doesn't agree with you to actually admit that one area that you're speaking about is right. And what I mean by that is, 
Isaiah was a Jewish man. He still, the Jews still believe that prophecy. They just don't understand that it's Christ Jesus or not all of them don't. Their eyes haven't been opened. But the Jews do not agree as a whole that Jesus was the Christ. Yet their own scripture that they approve of, that they read in synagogue still to this day, still promotes exactly what Jesus Christ went through. And Christians say, look, this is what we died for. This is what all of his disciples died for. They went to their grave saying, this is why we're going to believe in Jesus, because he did these things in Isaiah 53. And, and so you have an opposing view of the Jews supporting the main Christian ideal that Christ lived, died, and then rose again in their scripture actually supports the Christian view that it is in almost impossible to get in a, a foe or an enemy or someone that doesn't agree with you eye to eye on your, on your, especially your religious view for their own scripture to promote the very key core of who Christ exactly was and what he did for mankind. It's just absolutely, I know Paul, Paul might've spent one whole Saturday just on that one section, maybe even the whole chapter. Again, we're going to move forward. I've probably already spent too long on it, but it's, it's impossible to say, hey, Christ wasn't who he was, reading that scripture, knowing that Christians didn't have anything to do with that scripture, that, that section of scripture was written thousands of years before Christ was ever born, and thousands of years, or a thousand or more years before Christians were ever a thing, were ever actually a people group. So the Jews still have that scroll, it's called the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that, that chapter of Isaiah is in there. That, those scrolls predate Christians, and, and that, that section of Scripture shows us that Christians just believe in that from the Jews, that Christ died for that, and he fulfilled that, and yet they gave their lives because of that one Scripture right there, because of that truth that was in that one Scripture. Moving forward, I could say more. I, wow, it blows me away. I just read this last week, a very parallel scripture to that, Psalm 22, verse 1 through 18. We, we read all kinds of things that you, if you just read the Gospels, again, this is David, and this was six to 800 years before Christ ever lived. So you, uh, you got the same thing, uh, Dead Sea Scrolls. It's in the book of the Tanakh. The Jews still say, yes, this is our book. Yet Christians say, well, this is exactly what happened to Christ on the cross. Christians in the New Testament, via inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, wrote these same things about Jesus. <laughs> Parallel scripture to Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, verses 1 through 18. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If that sounds familiar, this is exactly what Jesus Christ proclaimed from the cross as he was hanging up on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it goes on to say things that he didn't say, but Jesus said that to get the reader's attention of his gospels to say, hey, this is the psalm I want you to go look at. This is the psalm that David saw when he was writing this psalm prophetically about me. And here I am. Hey, look at me. Verse 1 again, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, I'm not silent, but you are holy, enthroned in the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you were delivered and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. But I am a worm. 
and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. John 1 says he came to his own, but his own did not receive him. He was rejected by the very people that he came to save. Verse 7, all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their heads saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now, unless the religious leaders and all the Jews that were walking around Jesus Christ at the cross saying those same things, unless they purposely were, were anti-Jew at the time and, 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 they, and they were saying to themselves, you know what? Let's fulfill the prophecy of Psalm 22 here and let's say all these things about Jesus just to prove the prophecy, just to prove he was the Christ. That would have been heresy for them to do that. They would have not done that. They didn't believe in him as Messiah. They were the ones chancing, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And yet they were the same ones walking around the cross, shooting out their lip shaking their head, pointing their fingers. He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in them. Remember, they said, if you are the Christ, then come down from there. All that they said during that time when he was on the cross. Who else fits this bill? Who else did they say that? Just so they could just so they could prove that he was the Christ, even though they were the ones that had him crucified? I mean, again, people, Christians had nothing to do with writing this. Yet the New Testament and what Christ went through and why the disciples died all depended on what's written in all these scriptures. It's exactly what Jesus Christ went through. And the disciples died saying, This is the Jesus that we're dying for, the one who fits these things who this happened to wow how do you discount that it's you have to be absolutely foolish to say no that can't still be him that's ridiculous wake up admit that you're wrong verse 9 i want to keep going but you are he but you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help me. Verse 12 goes around speaking about what's going on around the cross too. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. Remember, the soldiers were also walking around. The soldiers were mocking him and they were surrounding him. Bulls of Bashan would have been a, a, not a good thing. They, uh, people that were going to attack him, people that hated him. And that's what he was surrounded by at the the cross. Verse 14, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. Uh, it is said that when they crucified Christ and they stretched out his arms that they had to dislocate his arms to get his arms to the holes that they nailed his hands into because the holes were pre-drilled in the cross. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. This is Christ and this is his he, This is how he's feeling on the cross. This is such an awesome scripture. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. Remember, he says on the cross, I thirst. And the Roman soldiers, and now unless they knew Psalm 22 and they were going, all right, we're going to prove this guy's the Christ. Oh yeah. They actually dipped their sponge in wine and they gave 
gave him something to drink because he said, I thirst. Now, again, unless they were proving that he was the Christ purposely, which is ridiculous, Psalm 22 points to Jesus Christ on the cross and exactly what he went through. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd, my tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of wicked has encircled me. Remember, think of Christ on the cross. They pierced my hands and my feet. Stop right there, because that's one of the most powerful things. Crucifixion is no longer something that people do to people. Crucifixion was not something that people did to people when David wrote this six to eight hundred years before Christ was crucified. Crucifixion was something that the Romans did to people. How is they pierced my hands and my feet? Holy camoli, who else has this happened to that claimed all these other things, that was claiming to be the Son of God, that was claiming to be the Christ, that was complaining, that was, that was, excuse me, not complaining, that, that was saying, hey, I'm the Messiah. Nobody. Nobody was saying these things, yet Jesus Christ did, and his hands and feet were pierced. When again, nobody before, that wasn't something that they punished people with before. It's not something that people do now, and it wasn't even something that they did in David's day. It was something that the Romans invented when Christ was under Roman law and Roman jurisdiction when he was alive and at his death. Now, come on. Please, no more crucifixion. How people aren't getting crucified. How can anybody claim this today? Nobody's claiming to be the Messiah that's getting their hands and feet pierced today. Indisputable, 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 indisputable proof that Jesus was the Christ, that he was who he said he was. Verse 17, I caught all my bones. Remember, they flogged them before. They left flesh hanging off his body, and his body was in complete destruction. They caught all my bones. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. And remember, the Roman soldiers divided his clothing, and they casted lots. And he had nothing to do with that, for he was just a, a, a desperate, broken man when this happened to him. And again, unless the Roman soldiers were purposely, purposely doing these things to fulfill a prophecy about him, proving that he was the Christ, absolutely ridiculous. Either he, either he was the Christ, or you just won't look at the evidence with absolute Pureness of heart. You, you just completely, you, you don't even want to listen. Because there's no way that anybody can see this. Christians didn't write this. Christians did not write this stuff. And if Christians did not write this stuff, but yet it proves exactly what Christ went through and why the disciples from the time of Christ to the time of now are dying for him, that means mounds of what I call, what people call, evidential evangelism or evidential proof that Christ is who he said that he was. There are so, so, so many more. The Messiah would be born from King David's family. We got that being recorded in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, and in Psalm 89, verses 3 and 4. And in the New Testament, that was fulfilled. Christ came, and we see that he was in the family tree of Christ, and in the family tree of David, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The Messiah would also be born from a virgin. Oh, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Well, Isaiah, a thousand years or so before Christ lived, Isaiah, same prophet we just looked at, 53, Isaiah 7. 
27, verse 14, a sign of the king to Israel for uh, Messiah's birth to a virgin. And then, of course, Christ fulfilling that, having nothing of it to do himself right. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23. The Messiah being born in Bethlehem, Micah, another prophet, just a smaller prophet, what the Bible calls a minor, a minor prophet. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet ought you shall come forth to me, the one to be the ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. Someone that's from forever. That's who's going to rule you, Israel. Well, who else claimed, hey, I've been alive forever. Uh, I, I am, and I, I was, and I am, and I am to come. I can't claim that. You can't claim that. Nobody else has claimed that. Christ claimed that. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 is the fulfilling. And also, John chapter 7, verses 40 through 43, showing, of course, that Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. Uh, another one, my last one, my last one. A man would come before the Messiah proclaiming that he was coming. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. The New Testament is fulfilled by John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 14. John the Baptist is that man. Wow. Now, again, those were just a few, just a few of the ways in the scriptures that Paul proved to them that Jesus was indeed the Christ or Messiah of God along with the gospel. I wrote a whole document on this, uh, uh, born, I, I think I chronicled about 10 or 15 of the most major ones in scripture, but there's so many. And again, Jesus said, seek and you shall find. Of course, if you go and if you seek these things out, prophecies, proofs of Jesus Christ being the actual Messiah of the Jews, the, the, Google will blow up your computer screen. You'll be blown away. And of course, just look at them with pure hearts. Please, people, please look at them with pure hearts. Don't look at them upon what, you know, Johnny at the bakery said or, or, or Billy Bob, you know, Joe Bob out in the farm said one day, oh, the Bible's this and the Bible's that. Well, if the Bible's all this and all that and it's a fraud, how in the world did people anywhere from 600 years to 1,500 years before Christ ever lived that had nothing to do with Christianity, how in the world did they write the future of who the Messiah would be, the one to come to save the whole world, to save all mankind from their sins. And I mean down to the very last detail of casting lots for the man's clothing, which he had nothing to do with at all. You just have to admit, wow, that's some awesome awesome stuff. Now, with all that awesome evidence and that evidential apologetics that Paul showed and proved to them that Jesus was indeed the Christ with and the gospel, uh, from all that powerful proof, you'd think that everyone that would have heard all of that stuff for three Saturdays in a row would have responded in total repentance, like dust and ashes, tearing clothes like the Jews used to do because these were Jews, and you'd think that they would have done it, right? But do they? Uh, not, not quite. Some do, some don't. Look at verses 4 and 5 at the two ways that we see people respond. And some of them were persuaded, verse 4 says. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks, not a few leading women, joined Paul and Silas. Hey, praise God. Some get saved. Some say, wow, this is awesome evidence. We can't deny it. I mean, the scripture says all. It's proof. Holy camoli. What can we do? Jesus, I need you. And they turn to him. Sadly, 
verse 5, But the Jews who were not persuaded, the second way, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. Jason, all I can gather here from the scripture, Jason must have been a disciple, or a new convert, probably, and, and, and probably because they knew him, because maybe he was like, one of their own from their own city. Uh, they turn in blind rage to try to get a hold of Paul and his travel companions so what? They could kill him. Uh, there's generally only two ways that people are going to respond to Jesus Christ biblically. They either love the news of the Savior and they turn to Christ for salvation or they hate the news of the Savior and they turn against Jesus Christ as well as those who are preaching him and representing him. Today, not sure, I mean, there is some places in the Bible, but we do have one more huge response that people give towards the Savior, and this is a sad one, and it's called being lukewarm. You can either hear the news and be on fire for the Lord, turn and repent, or you can hear the news of the Savior and be angry and rage against and argue against, or you can, oh, I don't really care. Yeah, I, you know, I, I got you. I, I understand. Oh, that, that's nice for you that you believe in Jesus. Oh, yeah, you know, I, I know about Jesus, but you know what? I'm, I'm good. Me and God got a special deal together. You know, I'm gonna be okay. And we, we do have, some, we do see some people having this attitude in the scriptures, but it's not as common as it as it is here in America. This horrible attitude, by the way, of of this lukewarmness of this I don't care attitude uh, is still an against Christ attitude. Matthew 12, 30, he said there's only two. He who is not with me is against me, and he who is not gathered with me scatters abroad. Now, whether you're cold against him or whether you're lukewarm, Jesus says, get out of here. Uh, you, you, uh, uh, that's it. You're done. Uh, Revelation 3, 15, he says this, I, I know your works that you ne are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. So even Christ says that this lukewarm attitude is even worse than being cold for him or hot, cold, I should say cold against him or hot for him. But they're both, whether you're cold against him or whether you're lukewarm, they're both up against attitudes. Why would Jesus say that the rejection of the lukewarmness or the indifference toward him was worse than even being cold, standing cold against him? Well, Scripture doesn't say, but I believe it's because if someone is indifferent or lukewarm, it's really hard to persuade them one way or the other in anything. They're just kind of floating through life and... They don't really give a care about anything, let alone God or Christ. And they're not really passionate in their fight against anything. They're just like, ah, you know, whatever, I, whatever, whatever. I don't really care. And because this person's not cold or hot for Christ, then they're just floating through life in total rejection towards Jesus Christ and on their way to hell. But they're on their way to hell, but they don't really care. Yeah, I know I'm not going to go to heaven when I die. I've met people like this. It is, breaks my heart. Yeah, you know, I don't, I'm not a Christian, and, I don't, and really, I don't care. I don't know Jesus Christ. I don't want to know Jesus Christ, and, you know, I'm, I'm good. I, I know I'm not going to go to heaven, but that, I'm all right with that. They're just lukewarm. They're going to care one day that they're lukewarm, but unfortunately, hope, unfortunately, if they don't turn and repent, it's going to be too late. 
And this hurts God's heart, of course, as he wants all men to come to him and be hot for him, 1 Timothy 2.4. And Jesus Christ even tries to get people saved by calling everyone, John 12.32. Now, a cold person against Jesus Christ can actually be converted to Christ because they can be reasoned with. And even if they are argumentative towards or against Jesus Christ, they're still willing to argue out the subject of him and hence can still be one to Christ. I have had many great conversations towards people who are actually cold against and actually argue against. And, and actually, by the end of the conversation, because I used to be one of these people that would, you know, just argue against anything that wasn't I didn't like, and I kind of still do today, but I'm still that person. Obviously, uh, my family knows that. People that know me know that. Uh, you could still argue with them, and they'll still listen to truth. They'll still listen as you talk to them. F famous names that have actually been won to Christ, that have been absolutely staunch against, would be famous people like Josh McDowell, Lee Strobel, another one, Dr. Simon Greenleaf, one of the principal founders of Harvard Law School, uh, maybe less known by me, maybe some of you might know more, a man named Francis Collins, who was once uh, the head of the Human Genome Project and a world-famous uh, genesis during the kind of the Bill Clinton area. And of course, uh, you that listen to me might know this one, this last one, uh, the uh, Pastor Ed Spagnoli. I, I was an absolute staunch against God. I didn't want anything to do with God. I didn't want anything to do with Christ. Leave me alone. And I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to love my sin, and I'm going to do my own thing, and get away from me. Don't get away. Anyway, that's, that's why you are listening today. God desires that you turn to Christ and then love the tar out of him for the rest of your lives. But if you won't, stand strong against him in, in, a, in, an, in an argue against him. You know, listen to people when they got something to say about them. Don't, don't just shut them down. Listen to them. Argue against them, right? And be cold against them, like in a freezer, right? But, but you're going to lose eventually because you will, because God's word will win in your life. But whatever you do, people, don't be lukewarm towards them. That's the worst. Getting back to our sermon Look at the ones that chose to fight against him, how foolish they were, people in blind rage, blind anger. So Paul had given all these amazing evidential facts of Jesus being the Christ from God, from God's prophetic word, and some repented, some didn't. Some that didn't basically went postal, right? And all the Christians that were in the area, Jason and his household, because of their flaming anger against Paul. And in verse 5, it tells us that these evil-hearted, unbelieving Jews had gathered some more evil men in the marketplace to go after Paul and his companions by going after Jason. Did these flaming, angry people in this mob actually get a hold of the man that they wanted? Pick up with me in verses 6 through 9. We'll finish out our scripture, and we'll get the conclusion of our account here. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These men have turned the world upside down and have come here to... See, they wanted Paul. They wanted to kill Paul bad. Paul was the one that had the arguments against you know, or for Christ. Paul was the one that basically told them, the way you believe about the Messiah, you need to change your mind because Jesus, look at what he did these three Saturdays in a row. Look at what Jesus did. And look at what happened here. Look at how, and you know what? His disciples are already dying for him because of those facts. Stephen and James, and they had already died for the Lord. And see, look, see, how can you fight that? And of course, I've been in arguments like this before when people can't actually fight me with truth because I give them truth. Like, hey, here's the truth of the situation. 
Now, come at me with real truth that actually contradicts that, that actually counteracts that. And when the people can't, just like these people here in our scripture, what they do is they, many, in fact, I've never had, but maybe just a couple of instances where they go, oh, you know what, you're, wow, you're right. I, boy, you know what, I should, I should repent because you know what, you're right, I'm wrong. No, that's, that's, that is not the majority. The majority go after with, oh, on fire, and they start attacking me personally and, and start derailing me. Like, like, that really defend, like that really makes their argument better. That just shows even more that they were wrong. So these guys here, they really want to kill Paul. They can't find Paul, so what do they do? They turn to the next best thing, these poor Jason and his household. And he says here, these who have turned the world upside down and have come here too, Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's, there's a king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So you see, the, Jason's in trouble here. But does God deliver Jason? God, thankfully, takes Jason out of the fire. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. This angry mob, they go after Jason and his household. They deliver him to the leaders of the, of the city or whatever. And the leaders, after they get relaxed and after it kind of calms down and the mob kind of leaves because they can't find Paul. And they, okay, well, we've arrested the one man that, that was in collusion with him. And, you know, we're going to, okay, that's it. And so after they leave, the, 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 obviously the rulers of the city, God touches their hearts, and they go, well, you know, what did you do, Jason? Well, oh, man, I just knew this guy, Paul, and, you know, he just gave these great arguments for this guy named Jesus, and, you know, that he was the Christ. And they were like, well, did you do anything? Paul, Jason says, I didn't do nothing. All I did was know the guy, and, he, you know, he stayed with me, and I'm a Christian too, and, you know, I believe what he said. But, you know, they didn't, and they were angry, and they wanted him. And they were like, well, that's stupid. Why did they arrest you? You didn't. You didn't actually do anything wrong. And Jason was like, well, no. Well, you know what? Just sneak out the back door. You know what? The mob's gone. Don't let them know we did it, but just, you know, kind of get out of here. And so God was with Jason and his household, and he gets him, and he delivers him. But (laughs) had they arrested Paul, they would have killed him dead for sure. It's, It's amazing. So finishing up here. Paul comes to Macedonia, the Macedonian city of Thessalonica, with his travel companions. He goes into the Jewish synagogue there for three separate Sabbaths or Saturdays and brings them the undisputed prophetic evidential proof from the scriptures of the Tanakh Old Testament of the Bible, Christian Old Testament, and they don't have any problems doing it, mind you. I'm going to bring that back up again. He didn't have any problems bringing the evidential proof or evidential evangelism to these people and that he gave them of the gospel And what? That Jesus Christ was indeed the Christ. He was indeed the Messiah. He gave them the evidential proof that Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be the Christ or Messiah of God, was indeed the one and only long-awaited true Jewish Christ and Messiah of God and Jehovah that all the prophets had been prophesying for for thousands of years before. Those that heard were split in their response. We've seen so many times through Paul's missionary journeys, the result, some repent and come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, while others, they reject Jesus Christ and then get an evil mob together and attack and wanting to kill Paul dead. And uh, like I said, we've seen that before too in Paul's journeys. They don't get their way as God protects Paul through the fast thinking of the believers in Jason's house. And Paul's delivered from death to preach another day. Next week, we find him in Berea. We're going to open up with next week's scripture. If God, I mean, God willing, I should say, Berea is just a little bit southwest down the road from Thessalonica, but still in Macedonia. 
Today we looked pretty heavily and pretty hotly at two different ideas in this message, in this section of Scripture. Number one, the evidential proof that Paul gave these Jews from God's Word to help them believe in Jesus Christ and the Gospel that Paul had no problems giving them. Today, as I said earlier, sadly, many have a problem with giving the type of evidential proof of Jesus Christ that Paul did to these uh, here in, this, in, in the city of Thessalonica. And I don't understand why, uh, because as I said earlier, if it was wrong, Paul wouldn't have allowed, or God wouldn't have allowed Paul to do it. Number one, Christians on this idea, people need help to believe in God's word as the truth. And why? The devil has done an amazing, masterful job. I hate him so much, but he's done such a darn good job of lying and convincing people that the Bible is corrupted and it cannot be trusted. And that is just simply not true. But of course, again, he's done a really great job of making people believe it. So that's one reason that evidential apologetics through the Word of God and through other means can be powerful for people that are doubting. You know, not everybody that doubts hates God. Some people, a lot of people that doubt are just kind of misled. They're confused about the facts. And, you know, when all you hear, um, think about how the Muslims treat their little children and think of how even the Germans with Hitler, you know, raised their children. They, both of these people groups raised their children to believe the fact that killing a Jew was no different than stepping on a roach. And maybe their consciences would have told them the truth that that was not, you know, right. But in reality, when you've got your conscience, and that's just a little tiny voice inside, but you've got your people that you love and respect, and they tell you, no, 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 killing this people group is just like squashing a roach on the floor, then you know what? You're going to really believe because, you know, you're generally going to believe those whom you love, thinking that they have your best interests in, in, in mind, and you're going to believe them to be telling you the truth. And so the devil has all these really strong and, and, and so-called brilliant scientists and this, that, and the other, saying, oh, there's no God, all this, that, and the other thing. Oh, just, Jesus, Bible's this, Bible's that, you can't trust the Bible, blah, blah, blah. So people that they think are really wise, which they're not in this area, are given bad advice, and so people are confused. Evidential apologetics is a powerful way to show people that, hey, look, the Bible can be trusted. Look, look at this aspect called prophecy. Hey, can you know the future? I mean, I have challenged atheists. I've challenged agnostics. I've challenged other religious people with these same facts that I brought up here today. And even though they were staunch against when we talked, at the end of our conversation with me just having patience and love for them, which is exactly what Jesus Christ did, they actually saw some truths and they weren't so staunch against. And I don't doubt that many of them went home and they kept on their search and then now maybe they're already saved by now. So you, you cannot disclude any avenue to reach people. And Paul here argued from the scriptures, which means that he gave a case. He reasoned from the scriptures. Basically, he kind of like... In a court, he argued for the fact that Jesus was the Christ. So it's like he was in a court and like he was talking to people, arguing a case. And this is exactly what he did. This is not wrong. People need help believing the Jesus Christ of the Bible. This is number two. 
They need help believing that he is the one and only savior of mankind and that nobody's going to get to heaven unless they go through him. Now, we if you're a Christian and you're listening to this, you're like, well, yeah, that's the truth. Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again. He's the only way to heaven. Yeah, and if you don't believe it, yeah, you're just going to hell. But I want you to think about this from, a, from an unbeliever's perspective. Somebody that's had bad relationships with religion and had religious people hurt them that weren't Christians, but they claimed to be. And then you got the world with all the evils and all the doubt and everything. I want you to think about these ideas about Jesus. And I want you to look at it from this perspective and why we might still need to today kind of prove that Jesus is really the Christ from the scriptures and that this is not bad. Think about this. You ask people to believe, if you're a Christian, that eternal life comes only by, in the physical now, the nothing human being named Jesus of Nazareth. Well, where's Nazareth? Where is that? Most people in this world have never even, don't even know where Nazareth is, let alone the name. Maybe all oh, Jesus is Nazareth, they just know the name because it's Jesus, right? They don't know where Nazareth is. And, and who was Jesus? You mean he was a Jew? Tiny little dinky people group anyway? The, the, uh, he was a Jew, right? Who, who are Jews? I'm, you're telling me the salvation for all the world comes out of the smallest, most hated people group of all time? Are you, are you kidding me? Now, this is what you expect people to believe. Without giving them any proof of Christ, you expect them to believe that this nothing man, Jesus, who come from the nothing of the Jews, who are one of the smallest people groups on the earth, who, who came from a nothing, uh, uh, nobody carpenter named Joseph, who he didn't even live to Jesus, was uh, lived on. He died sometime when Jesus was little. The Bible doesn't bring him up after, right? And, and you expect people to believe that salvation came from this type of person. Now, I mean, that, yeah, come on you got to admit, that's kind of a hard, that's a hard mouthful to, to swallow. I mean, come on. I mean, it'd be more believable if you said, yeah, this king of all this great nation, all this great nation that everybody knows, you know, this, this king, and, that, and then, uh, this one who came from this royal line, and then, this is the savior of all mankind. Well, yeah, I can kind of buy that. Oh, Queen Elizabeth? Oh, yeah, well, she's a queen of England. I mean, England's one of the big, yeah, I could see she's the savior of all mankind. But Jesus? It's kind of a hard mouthful to swallow. And again, if you can't admit that, then you've got to examine yourself because these are some hard details. Hard details to believe that Jesus, this nothing of a guy, is the Savior of all mankind. Kidding me. And with these amazingly hard and to understand and believe ideas that we as Christians expect people to believe, that they're always under attack by staunch unbelievers who seemingly have really good arguments against the Bible and Jesus as being the Christ. Even though they're not good arguments, they still seem that way to unbelievers. Saying all that, I see nothing wrong in pointing out the evidential, the the, the evidential proofs found in Scripture of the truth that Jesus was the Christ, prophecy and historicity and, and, and all these other things that the Bible has. And I even think that it's okay to go outside of God's Word. What to His wonderful, supernatural facts of His creation to help people believe in God of the Bible and, and Jesus Christ and being the truth of God's Word. And obviously, God Almighty is okay with giving evidential proof to people who don't believe in Jesus Christ, so unbelievers, because again, he allowed Paul to do it in Acts 17. Come on. 
And by Paul doing what he did, some people were even converted to Christ. So don't tell me of evidential evangelism doesn't win converts because it did here in Paul's case. Christians, God's not angry if we use evidential apologetics to help unbelievers believe in Jesus Christ and his word. I mean, really, we have to help people understand this is what Paul helped them do for three separate Saturdays in a row. And I think that this way of evangelism to unbelievers is one of the most powerful ways, Christians. I think you should use it. God is okay with it. The other idea that I covered pretty heavily today is how people respond to Jesus Christ. Hot, cold, like those we read about in Scripture, or lukewarm, as we see in places in Scripture, but mainly and sadly in America today. Uh, Just speaking on this idea to close, I want to say this. You today, you who are listening to me today, have received an amazing amount of proof, biblical undisputable proof that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and so the only way to heaven. And that the Bible must be true and accurate. And so it must be from an amazing, all-powerful, amazing God. And that's hope. And that's, he's hoping that you believe in him. That's what the word says. Acts 17, we're going to read it in a week or two. He's hoping that you seek him, hoping that you'll come to know him. And remember all the things we talked about today, prophecy, how that works, and all the amazing, how powerful that is in God's eyes. And now that you have all these amazing evidential proofs of these truths of the Bible, and the Bible's real, and Jesus is who he said he was, what will your response be to it all? If you are a truly born-again person, will you be even more hot for Jesus Christ than you are right now? And by that I mean... Are you going to study his word to know him more? Are you going to start preaching him, being more open about who you are for Jesus Christ? Are you going to live for him stronger? Are you going to do even more good works to show others that he's real? Because after all, the Bible says that many are on their way to hell. And if you look at our society, many are on their way to hell. Are you going to seek his face in a desperate need to know him more in your devotions? Or... Are you going to take all this information and, oh, I love Jesus, and, you know, just go on and be lukewarm for him. Just go about your day. Hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to call on him when I need him, you know, and and, you know, maybe when I'm in trouble. Listen, this is not what he wants from you. He wants you to be hot for Jesus Christ. Jesus said, you're either for me or against me. You either gather for me or you scatter abroad. What will be your response to Christ if you love him already? Are you going to live for him all the more? Or are you going to be cold? Or are you going to be lukewarm? Eh, you know, I'm okay with Jesus. I'm all right. Come on, Christians. He wants you to be on fire for Jesus Christ. To the unbeliever now, maybe you're not a true believer. Maybe you're not a born-again believer today in Christ. And so you realize that you're not saved and you're not going to heaven when you die. Well, I must ask you. Will you stop being cold against Jesus Christ? Will you stop being lukewarm and not caring about Jesus Christ? And will you turn in repentance and surrender? This is what he wants, Matthew 16, 24, 25. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. That means surrender your life to. Hey, this, this God that this guy's worshiping, man, he's amazing. And all these proofs that he's given of him, wow. You know what? I... 
I got to seek this God. I want to be saved. I got to know this God who knows the future. And he did all these awesome things and he made a way of salvation for me. And he wants you just to give up your life unto him. Let him deny himself. Let him surrender his life to himself. And let him take up his cross and then follow me. God wants you to follow Jesus Christ. That's what he's wanting you to do. For whoever's ours to save his life will lose it. If you want to keep your life though, he'll let you. But you're going to go ahead and lose your eternal life. But whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus said, will find it. Will you give up your life now to gain eternal life? A new life now, actually, because you'll actually get new life. As When you become born again, you become an amazing born-again believer that's in love with God. And you'll want to live for Him. And your life will change. And then you'll get everlasting life as well, too. Or, as I said... Will you be lukewarm towards him and just hear all the proof of this amazing Bible and Word of God and as to who he said he was and is? And will you just now go about your day and continue heading to hell and really not care because, you know, you're lukewarm? Oh, well, you know, it's, that's, that's, that's nice. God loves you so much. And he desires you to know him intimately, to have a heart knowledge of him and his son, Jesus Christ. Because he desires you to be saved and know him like a man knows his wife, like a wife knows her husband, like you've never known him before. He loves you so much, he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross for you, to pay for your sins. You'll never ever meet another person that'll love you the way God loves you. Turn to him today, please. Don't be lukewarm. Don't be cold standing against Admit that you're wrong. There's no way anybody, there's no man that could ever fulfill all those biblical prophecies that Jesus Christ did, and he's already fulfilled. Now, he's already done the work to show you who he is. Now, it's your choice. Will you repent or will you not? God loves you, and he's waiting for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord God, that you gave us these evidential proofs in your word, Lord God, to show you who, to show us who you are. Lord God, I pray that the Christians that are listening to me today, Lord, all over the world, I pray, Lord God, their fires would grow for you. Realizing the things that I said today, wow, I can't believe Jesus Christ actually did all those things, fulfilled all those prophecies. There's no way God's not real. Jesus Christ has to be the way. Wow, I'm going to follow him more now than I ever have before. I'm going to live for him now more than I have before. I'm going to be devoted and dedicated to him more than I ever have before. Wow. And I pray that for them, Lord God. I pray, please, dear God, that you would impart them that, that you'd see their hearts strong towards you now. And that, Lord, that they would just, their fire would grow for you. And Lord, I pray for those that listen that aren't yours. Those that listen, Lord God, that they've never been saved, or maybe they were saved, but they walked away. Lord God, I, I pray that they would hear the, the way that Paul proved Jesus as the Christ to these Jews. And I pray, Lord God, that they would repent, that they would fall on their knees right now, Lord God, and that they would cry out to you and ask you to forgive them of their sins and ask, and ask Jesus Christ to be their Lord and, 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 and dedicate their lives and, and surrender their lives to follow Jesus, this amazing Christ, this amazing God who, who loved us so much. Not only did he come and die for the sins of mankind and then rise again, but he proved it, Lord God, in his word. Wow. God, please, I pray that they'd make that decision for you today. Thank you so much. I love you and I praise you. 
And I ask all these things, Lord God, do all these things in all the hearts of those that are listening to me today. In Jesus Christ's mighty name, amen.